The Lymphoma Voices podcast brings you a series of conversations around topics of interest for people affected by lymphoma, the fifth most common cancer in the UK. Hello, my name is Anne Hook and I work for Lymphoma Action and I'm delighted to be joined today by Lou. Hello, Lou. Hi, Anne. Lovely to meet you. Lou, can you tell me a bit about your life before your lymphoma diagnosis, what your job was, where you were in life? I've been in the same organisation uh, for the last 39 years. Wow. Uh, I know. I, I certainly don't feel that old. Uh, and I've had a number of different activities. Uh, and my current role is all around human resources and supporting disability in the workplace. So as a line manager before that, I had a number of um, colleagues who had supported through cancer, non-lymphoma, I have to say, but my life was pretty much the same as everybody else's. I'm married. I've got a daughter, um, got a dog as well, and just, you know, working nine to five. Can you tell us a bit about your diagnosis of lymphoma? What happened, you know, when, when you suspect something was amiss? I can. Um, it started um, early on in 2017, and I'd had a lump in my neck um, appearing that, I'd, I'd, I'd probably had that for quite some time, but it was always put down as a cyst in terms of from the general practitioner. But then I had a sore throat and I started to get concerned. So this is not a cold or, you know, another different infection. And I went to the GP and they said, oh, you know, we'll give you some antibiotics, you know, take these, come back in a couple of weeks if it's slightly better. And this sore throat went on for over three months and it was only one side of, of my neck which was just really strange um, and to cut a long story short there I then spoke to the doctor again so that was in the February it all started and then in the June they sent me for an ultrasound and immediately they said we need you to come back so we need to do a biopsy so I went back the next day had a biopsy um, and then they found that I had got um, cells in my parotid gland, my saliva gland. Mm. And they said, we, we need to do some more investigative work here. At that point, and even up until that point, I'd been to the dentist as well. They'd had a good look in my mouth just to make sure nothing was amiss. And they said, it's very rare, you know, and even if it is found, you know, it's usually not a problem. And at that point, I went to the hospital thinking, oh, this is everything's fine. And I went with my husband and my daughter, who was 13 at the time. They sat in the waiting room. I went into this, uh, the, you know, part of the mm. consultant's room and he just said, um, it's not good news. And I was just completely expecting it's nothing or, you know, it's just a, a virus. And I was just in shock. And I spoke to the nurse, so the clinical nurse specialist who had come in by this point. And I said, you need to get my husband and my daughter. And they brought them in. And, and in a way, I kind of wish I hadn't, but they needed to know. And then they told us the news all together. And after that, my daughter has never spoken about it. And that was five years ago. So it has been traumatic in terms of for the family. Less so for me in the sense that I had an answer. I knew what the problem was. Mm -hmm. And earlier in the year before, I'd been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which is very much a, a mental health condition around, well, it's kind of, it is what it is. It's very much, it's either this or that. There's no kind of inner workings of the mind there. 
So it, for me, it was like, well, it's cancer. It is what it is. Mm. And it's treatable. So that, that is my, my sort of story around the diagnosis itself. Mm. And can you tell us, Lou, what type of lymphoma you were diagnosed with? Yes, I have. Um, stage three, follicular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And did they talk about what they were going to do, whether you were going to go on to treatment um, straight away? Yes, the consultant, because I'd had B symptoms, which meant that I'd had a lot of the night sweats, the itching, and he'd and quite a lot of them, quite significantly. And he said, because of those, and with the amount of um, cancer cells that were in my parotid gland and around my body, mm-hmm. and that they were going to start treatment straight away, which was the six months of rituximab and bendabustine. But he did allow me two weeks grace because it was during the school holidays. So um, I was able to spend those two weeks with my daughter before she went back to school. Um, but yes, I started two weeks after the, the actual diagnosis. And can you explain a bit more about how you felt the diagnosis affected you, um, whether it had any impact on, on your mental health? It did have an impact and quite a significant impact, but not at first. Mm. because I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I've had family members who have had cancer, survived cancer and passed away from cancer, but again, not lymphoma. Mm. So I, hadn't, I just didn't know what to expect. And, and at that point, I wasn't told about lymphoma action. So everything I was going by was other different charitable organisations information. And And I just wish that I had known at that point about lymphoma action, because I think that would have made that that part of my journey so much easier. We often hear from people that a diagnosis of low-grade lymphoma, which follicular lymphoma is, can be particularly difficult to understand and come to terms with, especially knowing that you've got a cancer that's treatable, but not curable. How do you feel about that? How's that impacted you? Well, to start off with, I think because I had the treatment, so, and, and it's, you know, straight away. Mm. So I felt cared for in the sense, in, in the professional medical sense. Mm. So that in itself, I, I was, you know, I didn't have any waiting issues. It was after the treatment and the longer I was in remission, and I am still in remission, but the longer I was in remission, the more it played on my mind. And to be honest, I think for me, I don't know how I would have handled it if I hadn't gone through treatment straight away. Because the thought now, even today, of wondering at what point it's going to be needing treatment does play every single day. It is on my mind. And did Do you feel that the support you needed varied? It was obviously a shock at first, but actually it sounds to me like it's still, you're still living with a lot of uncertainty. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, it is very fair. And thank you for saying that because it's nice to have an acknowledgement that this impacts after treatment or that it continues to impact on individuals. And for me, you know, my mental health has been up and down quite a lot. Um, I do have a number of other disabilities that impact on my health. So I think for me, the different stages of treatment is really important and that support within that. 
you know, at the time of treatment, you get tremendous support. The consultant is there all the time. You're seeing them, you're seeing the clinical team, and, you know, and in the the club that I, I always say to, I've joined the club that no one wants to join. And, you know, when I was in um, waiting for and getting my treatments, you know, in the chemotherapy um, part of the hospital, that I think I was with people who got it. So I didn't feel as isolated mm. as I did after treatment because for a while, you know, I had to keep away from people because of my immunity was low. I wasn't in work for eight weeks after treatment. So that part was very difficult trying to work my way through and getting my head around having had cancer because the treatment and the chemotherapy showed that the cancer had gone into remission. So at that point, I was like, well, great, you know, this is wonderful. Mm. But then, as a, as the time went on and the support became really quite vital, and I spoke to my consultant and I said, this is really starting to affect me now, just this not knowing and, you know, you hear other people, it, it, I always refer to it as it's, it's like when you buy a new car, you know, you buy the car and then you always see the car everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, the same sort of car. Mm-hmm. And it was the same. As soon as um, I w- returned back to work and spoke to colleagues and they said, well, I know someone with lymphoma. And so that, I think, is it, there's always going to be changes through the journey of lymphoma and the support. But the one thing, and, and I'll just come back to it, as I've said earlier, the one consistent support that would have, would have really helped me at those early stages was knowing about lymphoma action. Mm-hmm. Because the website, the body system, the webinars, and also the Live Your Life workshops have been a tremendous help for me. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me if there are any particular triggers that are problematic? Is it when you're about to have a follow-up appointment or when you're thinking about going on holiday? Are there particular triggers that are difficult when you're living on active monitoring, do you think, Lou? I think there are so many triggers, to be honest. And and as I said, every day it is with me. It doesn't go away. It's not like I can take my coat off, you know, when I leave or get into the house or I go somewhere. But triggers are more around if something happens in my body where my body changes or I feel, a, you know, a twinge or something happens or I get an itch or because I tend not to keep feeling, for want of a better word, all of my lymph nodes. Mm. Um, I try to avoid that at all cost because I think, well, that's going to be done with the consultant anyway. And mine is slow growing. So, and of course the body changes, you know, week to week. So that I think, but another, but another trigger is every time I have to go for a blood test because I really did develop PTSD as a result of the chemotherapy. And so having a blood test now, any form of needles does impact on me. Um, so yeah, so they are kind of the two triggers, less so for going and seeing the consultant because I know I'm being checked, but it is needles, definitely. Mm. We recognise that for some people going through lymphoma and treatment for lymphoma, it can be really quite traumatic. You mentioned PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Would you mind telling us a bit more about your experience of that? Yes, of course. Um, and, and, and I know for many people, it, it can be very distressing to talk about. For me, um, 
I, I suppose that really I was always not frightened of needles, but I would would avoid them. But I didn't really have many. I mean, I mean the most I had at the time when, when I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, but of course, I, I won't go into the actual experience that I had during um, the chemo, chemotherapy stage. But suffice to say afterwards, the very thought of just, you know, being cannulated, and it's even on my hospital records now that I'm difficult to cannulate. But seriously, um, PTSD has such a, a massive effect, uh, an impact when those triggers occur. So going for my regular um, checkups and having automatically having a blood test when the GP needs a blood test just as a routine. So now one of the main senior nurses at my GP practice will always do the bloods for me, even though technically the surgery doesn't do that. You know, by speaking out, I've got that support. And have you found any coping strategies for this or have you been offered any support to, to help you with anxiety around uh, needles and so on? I have. Um, and when I spoke to the consultant, there were a number of different support sources. The first one, of course, was getting in touch with Lymphoma Action and attending the, the first Live Your Life workshop for me. I just came away with my mum and I just said, I need to do this. So that for me was the first thing. But then I spoke to the consultant, especially as time was moving on and the remission was lasting longer. And I just said to the consultant, I'm on countdown. I'm just wondering if this week, tomorrow, next month, you know, next year, when is it going to be? And he referred me through to the um, psychology services within oncology. And I saw one of the psychologists there for nearly a year, actually, just before the pandemic. And that was incredibly helpful mm. because I did, um, it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. So like um, cognitive behavioural therapy, that's usually to overcome a problem, whereas acceptance and commitment therapy is about coming to terms and coping. And that has helped me. And, I've ut- and I utilise those skills um, a lot. Mindfulness is part of that. So I do have lots of different ways to calm myself down, but also talking to people. And the one thing that I did as well, which I'm actually really quite proud of in work, I said I was co-chair, or I am co-chair of our um, ministerial department's disability network. And uh, part of that, we set up Confident About Cancer Cafes. Mm-hmm. And every month we run a cafe for all of our staff. And we do get a really good attendance. And again, for all cancers, but it just helps to know that you're not alone. And so being isolated made it worse. I've written, well, say personal stories. I've written blogs um, within my work environment and shared my story Mm -hmm. to inspire other people. That helps me to cope. And it sounds like that was incredibly helpful for you. Was that offered to you through the NHS or did you have to find um, that support that you managed to to gain? That was through the NHS um, and it was purely through my consultant. He was the one who put me um, or referred me through to the um, psychology services. So it might be that if other people are struggling, it might be worth them talking to their medical team and asking if similar sort of things are available for them because it sounds like it was incredibly useful. 
Absolutely. Um, and there, there are so many other forms of support as well. In particular, many of the big um, city hospitals, there's also Maggie's as well. Absolutely. I think the starting point is always to talk to the consultant or the clinical nurse specialist because they can signpost onto those sources of support. But that instant support really does come from lymphoma action and the helpline. And, you know, support is obviously really important. And But we hear from a lot of people who find it very difficult to ask for support or to admit that they're struggling. So it sounds to me like you would encourage anyone to, to have that conversation and, and what be open and frank about their, how much they're struggling. Asking and seeking um, support and help is very difficult for everybody because we don't like to think we can't cope. But actually, when we get the right support and help, we can live a better life with cancer. And that has certainly helped me. Mm -hmm. So it's imperative people do just go and ask, or even if they're confused or don't understand, there is always someone who can provide information or signposting or that shoulder to lean on. Mm -hmm. I have another question. At the beginning of our conversation, you uh, explained that your daughter went with you to the appointment where you had your diagnosis and how upsetting it was for her to the point that she hasn't really spoken about it since. How do you and she manage that situation, do you feel? Sometimes, not at all, to be quite honest, because she, there are times when she will absolutely not talk about it. That is her safe space. And to her at the moment, I'm in remission, so I'm fine. But there are, occasionally we will just sit down and I will just say everything's fine. So every time I go through for an appointment or have a test, I will always tell her. So I'm just as honest as I can be with her, and I always have been. Um, and I think probably the older she gets, I mean, she was 13 when I got my diagnosis. Mm. And so the more mature she gets, she will have a greater understanding. And I tried lots of different ways to get her to talk through talking to her friends. Could they support her? And, and to be fair, they, they did actually help her. She found it easier to talk to her friends than me. Mm. So she found, in a way, her own coping mechanism. But by just keeping her involved periodically, when I was going for my checkups and everything, that helped. And, and I did. I used um, the various different books around for talking to children about cancer and certainly for us talking to children about lymphoma. But it just she has, she has to know and talk in her own way. It's just understanding. She wouldn't go and see the oncology psychologist. So that was the, the only other option. But, you know, through school, she performed brilliantly during her GCSEs. She again did brilliantly in her A-levels and she started university this week. So she's found a way that was right for her. And I can't force my views on how she should handle her mental health because she's found her own way. What role do you think information plays in helping people come to terms with the impact of lymphoma? And did you find that it helps to make you able to cope with your emotions by having that information? I, I, I'm smiling as I'm talking about this because there are a number of sources of, or resources of information that can be incredibly harmful 
And that's usually doing just a general in internet search that can bring up very, you know, distressing information. So I think the importance of getting information is through proper research places. So charitable organisations through the, you know, haematology consultants, um, surgeries, through the sources of information that's available with your CNS, the clinical nurse specialist. Mm. And you've been incredibly open and honest about sharing about your um, struggles with mental health, particularly after your treatment. But it's something people find very difficult to talk about or bring up in conversation. Why do you think that is? And how can people maybe overcome that, do you think? I think there's a part of the media that plays in this, that there is still a stigma around mental health, that it's usually a sign, as per the media, of weakness and that vulnerability, whereas actually for a lot of people it's, it's a coping mechanism. It takes them to a place where they feel safe. I think we need to overcome the stigma of mental ill health and understand that actually those fears and worries and concerns, all of the negative emotions that come with cancer by listening, listening to other stories, especially those people who have either survived cancer or are living with cancer, that give us hope. It's, I think, again, with the clinical nurse specialists and the haematology teams, it really is important that people understand that there is that support out there and that they can be themselves in a safe space. And those forums that we have and Facebook, for example, they're safe spaces where it's okay to say, I'm not okay. Mm. I mean, you've talked about the end of treatment, and it's something we hear a lot, actually, um, about how while people are undergoing treatment, they kind of feel like something's happening and they're in the moment. But it's actually that a lot of people struggle more mentally when they come to the end of the treatment, perhaps because of people around them think, oh, good, that's it. You've finished your treatment. That's fantastic. You must feel great. And, and that's a big problem, isn't it? I don't know how you overcome that. How do you explain to people that actually you're, you're still very much living with it? Or, or is that something you don't do, Lou? No, it's something I do talk about quite a lot, to be fair. <laughs> I say smiling again, because I think it's important. It's important to me that those around me know how this impacts on my life. Now, I am a person who will share and happy to do so to help and inform other people but my own experience that during those six months of chemotherapy I actually lost count of the number of really well-being and, and lovely messages from friends and family and colleagues but as soon as I returned to work after the eight weeks after treatment that stopped and very few people ask me now how just how I am and that is incredibly hard and isolating and that's why I then say went on to the Live Your Life workshop, but also wanted to share my story as much as I possibly could because I wouldn't want anybody to have to go through what I felt. And it is a very common thing of people saying, this is what happens to me. You know, for some people, I mean, I was lucky. I didn't lose my hair because of the treatment type. Mm. But again, talking to other people who have lost their hair and the impact that it's had on them. Mm. And, you know, for someone to just say, well, you can wear a wig you know is incredibly unhelpful people are so well-meaning they think they're trying to do the right thing but we just have to be mindful with what we're saying and that impact because 
even post-treatment, there are still things that can happen to the body and changes to the body and the side effects of that treatment that can happen for years. Uh, and we do talk about chemo brain, and I definitely have chemo brain even now. So again, if the more we can talk about it, the more we can help each other to understand that lived experience and make life easier for others. Lou, how do you initiate conversations with different groups of people around you? So you've got family, you've got friends, you've got work colleagues, you've got healthcare professionals. And do you address those conversations in different ways, do you think? As again, a very good question. Uh, thank you. And I know with the family members, uh, I tend to be less open so that I don't frighten them. But with my close friends, I can be a little bit more of myself because I just think it, it, it really is important to me that my family know that I'm OK because I don't want them to worry unnecessarily even more than they will be. With my friends, they're further removed from my family in that sense. So they're not with me all the time. So it's easier for me just to share that bit more with my work colleagues. I tend to keep to the facts, I think. I don't necessarily share everything. I mean, I do share my story, but I won't necessarily share everything. My line manager and um, one of the closest in the team who I'm closest to, they know everything. If I'm having a bad day, all I need to do is just message them and say, it's a bad day. Mm. And they will just check in throughout the day to make sure I'm okay. So it's about setting the scene and also, again, like with my daughter, who doesn't necessarily want to talk about it, that once you know and you find out the expectations of each person, and also we all have boundaries mm -hmm. in terms of having and, you know, receiving and sharing information. So we're like with the medical professionals, it's all very clinical. You know, there's no, there's not a lot of emotion goes into those conversations. It's like, oh, yes, you know, your stats are all right, this, you're not anemic. So you don't kind of get to that side, although I have to say I've had an incredibly brilliant consultant throughout and he has been so supportive. So I have felt, you know, to be open to share how I felt, especially my mental health when I was then on active monitoring and still am on active monitoring. So it is about just really talking to each group of area, that demographic, mm. to then understand what they want to know, how they can help me as well because it's important to have that conversation and also just letting them know it's okay to ask a question mm -hmm. they don't need to you know walk on eggshells around me I'm not going to break I'm not saying I will always be happy and etc but definitely you know it's just having the conversation and just setting those boundaries and do you think Lou that you work on instinct or is it a, do you go through a process of thinking active work I'm going to limit because I'm in the workplace and with my family I want to protect them do you think that's a valid point really I think it's a bit of both actually because there are certain people that I, I won't share with I might if they ask me I might just say yes I've got lymphoma but I won't necessarily share any more details so that's that guarded approach and that's with people who either you know I don't know very well or I've only just met um, so that's kind of in that plan that's almost automatic. Whereas with friends and family, it is a bit more, I go with the flow. Mm. 
Um, and the same with work to a degree. I like to set a certain amount of information out. And when I'm sharing my story, because it just gets the story out there and the signposting to the sources available and how I've used them. Um, so then again, again, it's about reading the room as well. Very similar to the Live Your Laugh workshops. Mm. You, when you're reading the room and you're understanding those attendees and, and I'm very good at reading people, I'm very empathetic. So I can, you know, observe and just assess in that moment what is right and what's wrong for that person or those people in, in front of me. You've spoken quite a bit about uh, the Live Your Life workshop and you obviously gained an awful lot from it and have subsequently very generously become a volunteer for the Live Your Life workshop. Can you tell us a bit about what drew you to volunteering for us and what you get out of it? Yes, of course. Um, Peter, who ran that workshop for us, um, so for myself and my mum, and she was at, we were both at different stages when we were in there. As a carer, or certainly as my mum, she wasn't having as much support as what I was. So for her, it was a completely different experience. She was far more upset than I was. I was just listening kind of avidly to Peter and just hanging on to every word that he said because he got me. It was, he really did. It was like, that's me. You're talking about me. And that, I think, was the light bulb went on at that point. And I just thought, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. There are other people. And by the afternoon, my mum had also turned around in her way. She was very upset in the morning. Mm. And by the afternoon, she was chatting away and contributing and and actually helping some of the other attendees as well who were still very upset because we were all at different stages, Mm. you know, in that session of our lymphoma journey. I was like, oh, I need to do this because I deliver training as part of my day job. So that it does come natural to me. But I just thought it's almost like a calling. And I just felt it's helped me so much that I want to help other people. And I say that is a coping strategy for me. It can at times be very distressing to see people upset, especially when they're at the start of their journey or they're on watch and wait or active monitoring, as we prefer to call it. But that, I think, is just having that um, support function in place. And that is just that camaraderie that you you can't replace or get anywhere else and you said that you because you're obviously very open but you said other people were more guarded and perhaps a little less sharing did you find that by the end of the live your life workshop everyone was getting something out of it absolutely and because we all got together once we'd officially closed the session everybody just said this has been so helpful Another thing I wanted to touch on is about the new normal that people talk about. After you've had a diagnosis of lymphoma, you kind of have to adjust to a new normal, don't you? How do you think the new normal is for you? Where do you feel like you are that's different to where you were before your lymphoma diagnosis, do you think? That's a really good question. Thank you, Anne. For me, I think the new normal is, it'll never be a new normal, really, because every day, is a different step on the path of the journey through lymphoma. I've kind of got pre-cancer Louise and post-cancer Louise, but post-cancer Louise changes over time. So the more I become involved in supporting other people, the more I understand about myself, because I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned about my own resilience 
and also how I can support other people through that journey. But I'm very much aware of my body now, far more than I ever was. I'm more informed medically in that sense. So actually, and you know, I do say this, and, and I don't mean this to sound funny, but in a way, I'm glad I've got the cancer that I have because it allows me to make a difference to other people. And that is very important to me. That's an amazing attitude. So thank you. Now, Louise, we've got a couple of bonus questions. And the first one is, what brings you joy? (laughs) What brings me joy? So many things. Waking up in the morning, uh, being able to work and doing the job that I love, doing the volunteer work that I do for Lymphoma Action. That brings me absolute joy. And just... I think looking forward to each day, there are things every day that have negative implications on my mental health. But I always remember there was a a film that I used to watch when I was little Mm -hmm. and it was called Pollyanna. And in the film, um, I think it was Jane Wyman, who was her um, aunt. Her dad had always taught her from being little that there was always something to be glad about. So today I'm glad that I don't need treatment today. I'm glad that I'm able to do this podcast. I'm glad that I've been at work supporting colleagues who have cancer. And that brings me joy, as well as finishing work and being able to then watch all my TV soaps and everything else and walk the dog. (laughs) (laughs) And the other question I wanted to ask you is, what one tip would you give to someone who was newly diagnosed with lymphoma? Always seek support and help you need and that will change at every stage of your journey but don't be afraid to ask for that help wise words thank you Lou it's been a real joy talking to you today thank you very much thank you so much really enjoyed it have the pleasure thank you Anne for more information about lymphoma and the support we can offer to people affected by the condition please visit the lymphoma action website at www.lymphoma-action.org.uk. Lymphoma Action. Inform. Support. Connect.